The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Museum Life with Carol Bossert. Museums are important whether we work in them, for them, or simply love visiting them. Throughout history, people have collected things and put them on display to enjoy. But today's museums offer much more than rooms filled with stuff. They provide places to learn and share experiences with family and friends, as well as sanctuaries to unplug, rest, and refresh. On today's show, we'll discuss how museums can remain relevant and sustainable, reach out to new audiences, and remain attuned to cultural and technological trends. Now, here's your host, Carol Bossert. Good morning and welcome to the show today. I'm Carol Bossert. You're listening to Museum Life. And today's program is entitled Pursuing Inclusion. And uh, this is actually a little bit of a follow-up to some of the topics and conversations that were brought up last week when I was uh, we were discussing with a group of sort of the follow-up to, uh, to museums, uh, what they were doing and what they were not doing doing in terms of tackling issues of race that have been brought up because of of such unfortunate issue, uh, unfortunate things that happened this past summer in Ferguson, Missouri, and other places that have really brought this subject to the forefront. And as part of that discussion, one of the themes that's kept coming up is, you know, so whose museum is it ed- anyway? And uh, also, what what topics uh, can be should be addressed in certain museums and not in other museums? And how do museums? really either inadvertently narrow culture and uh, sort of uh, segregate culture, if you will, or provide inclusion so that everyone is, is looking at all culture uh, together. And so with that in mind, I have brought on a wonderful guest today to help us have that discussion and sort of sort th- some things out and perhaps create a, a framework for us to uh, talk about this a little bit more. Portia Moore is a doctoral candidate enrolled in the School of Library and Information Science and the McKisson Museum's Museum Management Program at the University of South Carolina. She is the recipient of many honors. She has uh, is a uh, great speaker, phenomenal speaker. She has worked uh, presented at museums in the web and museums computer network. She has explored museums from all around the world, and she is a regular contributing writer for Inclusium, uh, a regular blog that discusses this this topic. You can also follow Portia on Twitter at a Portia Muse M. Uh, and so with that, Portia, welcome to the show today. Thank you, Carol, so much. It's really awesome to talk to you. 
Oh, yes. I've been looking forward uh, to this all week myself. So, Portia, I've just given a very brief uh, uh, introduction about you, and but if you would be so kind to share with our listeners just a little bit about your career trajectory and, more importantly, sort of those, those pivotal experiences that have most influenced your, your career to date and your uh, research interests. Okay, um, well, I actually used to be um, a professor of um, English many years ago, Um, and when I was in graduate school the first time, um, I used to work at the Avery Research Center for African American History and Culture, and um, just fell in love with the idea of culture, museum work. Um, my mother was a fourth grade teacher for over 30 years, and so I you know, went with her on many, many field trips to museums and found myself um, as an adult always being in museums. And so uh, when I graduated um, from graduate school the first time, I actually moved to, um, to Japan to teach English for several years. And the entire time that I was in Japan, I just kept thinking, I really want to do work um, that has to do with culture and museums, and um, thought a lot about the work that I was able to do at the Avery Research Center for African American History and Culture, and returned to the United States, um, kept teaching um, creative writing and English literature, but found out about a brand-new program, a Ph.D. program, at the University of South Carolina, um, where I'm from, which is called um, the CHILL Fellow, and it stands for um, Cultural Heritage Informatics Leadership Librarian. And essentially what the CHILL Library Program does is um, allow students to look at convergence issues between libraries, archives, and museums. And... um, I just started really, really focusing on my first love and passion, which is art museums. And from there, my research just sort of evolved. And the question that I kept coming to over and over again is, you know, in general, why am I the only person of color at a museum? I I spend the bulk of my time um, either outside in nature, kind of walking and hiking or and camping, or at a museum. And I'm always really excited and really passionate about museums and you know, talking to people about memberships and this program and that program, but really trying to answer the question of why is it sort of historically that um, communities of color or visitors of color just don't seem to be interested um, in museum going as a kind of leisure time activity. Uh, And so some of the pivotal experiences that I've had, um, again, include Uh, working at the Avery Research Center many years ago and being able to put my hands on um, the shackles of uh, formerly enslaved um, Africans and being able to see and have interaction with and um, have a great um, understanding and rich kind of context for these cultural heritage objects that really, really um, had a really um, strong impact on me. And then I also think, um, you know, like you said before, I'm able to sort of travel and present at conferences and meet um, many um, 
powerful, innovative thinkers in this field. And so I think just in many ways, just being able to have these meaningful conversations with other museum professionals and looking at um, the phenomenal work that is being done, both um, here and abroad. So that's kind of my my career trajectory thus far. That's that. Thank you, uh, Portia. Thank you very much. Um, I know w- when you and I were getting acquainted and sort of preparing for this show, we talked a lot about language and mm-hmm. how language is so freighted. And in fact, I really struggled with what to even call this uh, program today mm-hmm. uh, because every word I thought of, uh, you know, was freighted in in some way. Yet we need this language to communicate. Uh, with with others, so uh, you know. So I I I use the word inclusion uh, mm-hmm. because I you know at some point I I've got a deadline and I have to to make something <laughs> up. So um, <laughs> so why don't we start? You because know, I think that this this you you make such really good points about language and really got you know clearly got me thinking about it. So mm-hmm. what does that word inclusion mean to you? Inclusion. Um, well, first, I, I really want to thank um, Rose Peke Kinsley and Althea um, Whitman, who started the Inclusium uh, project, you know, which is now an Inclusium blog, um, because I think the work that they're doing is absolutely phenomenal. It provides this wonderful platform for uh, museum practitioners, you know, across the globe to, um, to, write, and, to write about inclusion and, and what inclusion really means and, and how they're thinking about inclusion and defining inclusion and being able to share stories about inclusion and praxis. In the last um, year or so, maybe, maybe even in the last six months or so, um, Rose and I have had lots of really meaningful, powerful conversations. And um, it is clear to me that when I, as a critical race theorist, when I think of and use inclusion, I'm very um, clearly thinking about inclusion in in sort of a race-specific way. But uh, like I said, in the last six months or so, inclusion for me has become an increasingly complex term. So when I use the word inclusion, I really do mean many things at once. I mean change. I mean representativeness. Um, I mean identity groups and communities um, which have been uh, historically absent from a museum. And what I mean is you need to identify those groups and bring them in. And so when I use that word inclusion, I'm really meaning um, we need to identify who has been excluded and make them see the value in what we're doing as museum professionals. And so nine times out of ten, though, when I'm using the term inclusion, I think I refer to um, ethnic and racial groups who are just simply not connecting with the museum. And then I've, you know, I've also come to realize that in many ways at the same time, when I use that term inclusion, I am referring to other communities as well. I'm using the term um, inclusion to, re- to reference the LGBT community, to the senior community, um, to single-parent to single households, to non-traditional families, 
families, families with young children who don't feel as if they can bring their children to the museum. Um, and in many ways, I'm even speaking to the homeless community and to those women and families who reside in shelters. And so I think what I mean is anyone who does not fit um, that sort of mold when we think about who or what the traditional um, museum goer looks like. That's very interesting. That does. Uh, uh, thank you for sharing your your uh, your evolution of thought. Uh, I, I clearly you believe, uh, as many of us do, but uh, that museums are for everyone, and that yes. everyone can find a place yes. in 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 them. <clears throat> now, excuse me, just to. Um, uh, you know, just I, I got to ask this question, um, particularly now as you know, sort of your your expanded view of what inclusion means. Uh, is it the same in your mind as what diversity means, or how we've used that term diversity? No, um, I you know, again as a former English uh, professor, language is 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 so important to me. Um, I'm, I'm highly aware of the different connotations of a word, the different meanings of a word, the power of a word. Um, for me, inclusion is um, a much more pow- a much more positive word. Um, it's not that diversity um, is a negative thing, but my understanding of diversity is is certainly different. I think, than most people would think of diversity. When I think of diversity, um, I, I really battle with that term because I sometimes think of diversity as a discursive term, which is used um, in discourses of participation. And so when I think of diversity, I think of it as um, you being used as a term, as a kind of a buzzword that is used to just say, hey, we want more uh, black folks to come in or we want more people from the Asian community to come in to populate or add um, variety to a particular um, exhibit or event or program. And I think when I think of diversity, um, the questions that come to mind are, well, who is going to benefit from this act of diversity or this diverse experience. And when I think of diversity and what diversity truly means, I think diversity is something that everyone should benefit from, not just a sort of dominant um, white group, if you will. And so for me, even though I myself use that term diversity, um, but I try to use it very sparingly, diversity um, in a lot of ways for me, has become a kind of political term, if you will, Um, because, again, I think it has to do with who are we saying or arguing that um, benefits from the use of that term diversity. That's a very interesting way of looking at that. Uh, And uh, Portia, I I certainly had not really thought about it uh, as that at at all, uh, but it makes me think of all of the 
museum programs that even I was involved with uh, early in my career where there would be a particular grant program or there would be a particular Mm -hmm. activity or a particular artist uh, Mm -hmm. that, as you say, we really wanted to populate the museum or we had, frankly, money to populate Mm -hmm. the museum with a certain Mm -hmm. group of people and that were different from what we looked like. And so we called them diverse uh, and, and who really is and I and who really benefited and we thought well the people coming into the museum our assumption was that you get people into the museum and they are naturally going to benefit from that but Mm -hmm. I'm you know now that really gives me pause uh, to think Mm -hmm. back on my own experiences and to say (laughs) who really benefited from that you know was it was it was it me um, mm-hmm. Either my 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 ego or doing a job well done uh, because I brought a grant you know grant into uh, uh, into the the uh, institution and brought in money. Uh, that's that is something I'm going to have to think about uh, uh, much more carefully in the future. Mm-hmm. And you know, I've, like I said, I've, I've increasingly um, come to an understanding about. Um, like I said, discourses of participation and and what do we really mean? I think it's very easy to say, let us be. Um, you know, one of the another word that I have a lot of issue with is the word multiculturalism, or just or like the ideologies associated with multiculturalism. Um, because again, I think you can say these terms and you can perhaps put on a program or an exhibit to. Um, say that you've completed that action of, of quote-unquote, being diverse, but then outside of that one act, how are you, how does that trickle down into um, that community of color or that population that you have um, sought to engage with you for that one event? How does that incorporate um, genuine engagement and genuine connection, and um, how does that instill um, genuine values of culture and memory and, you know, retaining that group's participation. And, and that's the kind of the problem that I have with diversity politics and the use of that word diversity because it just seems very fleeting and, you know, um, just for the moment. And um, while I do recognize and understand that that probably is a very powerful and meaningful um, and positive interaction, I just don't think that it has um, any long-term or lasting value. Yes, I, I, I'm beginning to understand that. And, of course, I've said on the show many times, and, and you have repeated it as well, that language does trap us in models uh, mm-hmm. and, and reinforces uh, uh, assumptions and presumptions yes. without allowing us to really question them. Uh, mm-hmm. We are going to, and with that, we are going to take our first of two breaks, but please okay. stay tuned. Uh, Portia uh, has so much more uh, that uh, that she can share with us, and I'm sure you agree with me that this is uh, a very important topic to, to be discussing. So we will be back in one moment. Uh, remember, you can always shoot me an email at carol.bossard at verizon.net. Uh, my, uh, follow me on Twitter at MuseWrite, uh, 
W-R-I-T-E. And uh, I am always happy to hear from my listeners and uh, friends and colleagues about uh, about uh, this, this topic and other topics that we should be talking about. So uh, please stay tuned. We will be back in just a moment. This is Carol Bossert for Museum Life. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Conservation starts with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to Our Wild World with host Ellie Weiss. Our show centers on Africa each week and what's being done to save our wildlife, ecology, and ourselves. However, we'll also discuss what's going on closer to home. And most importantly, we'll let you know what can be done in our own backyards by featuring guest experts and featuring your questions and answers. Listen every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Want to help make our world a better place, but not sure where to start? Tune into Better Worldians Radio with the creators of the social game on Facebook called A Better World. Join hosts Ray, Mary Sue, and Gregory Hansel, who will inspire you to make a big difference in small ways. They'll speak to experts, authors, volunteers, and everyday people who are changing the world daily. Better Worldians Radio is heard live every Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Variety. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bossert. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to carol.bossert at verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life. Welcome back. Uh, This is Carol Bossert. Uh, You're listening to Museum Life. And I am here today with Portia Moore. And we are talking about... uh, uh, inclusion, but more importantly, we are starting from the assumption that museums are for everyone, and uh, with without um, uh, splitting hairs, but for literally everyone in the community. Uh, but Portia, let's go back I'll, I'll just a, just a bit, um, and okay. and for a moment, let's look at this issue of people of color as mm-hmm. visitors and uh, you know maybe we'll expand that to even staff and, and board members I mean it's no secret I think um, and you have even reported the future uh, the Center for the Future of Museums reports that nine uh, percent uh, uh, of me- visitors mm-hmm. to museums are people of color I mean, yeah. that's not even splitting it into, you know, African-Americans or Asians, uh, mm-hmm. Latina, um, or Native Americans. It's like 9% are people mm-hmm. of color. And that is after a lot of good efforts on the part mm-hmm. of many institutions and many of our colleagues uh, to get 
to reach out to people of color. So uh, based on your experiences and also the way you're thinking about these issues, why do museums have such a difficult time attracting and retaining people of color? That's, that's, um, that's a great question. Um, I wish I could remember the, the source. I can't recall it off the top of my head, but um, about a year ago, I came across a statistic that said of that 9%, um, only 2 to 3% of that 9% um, minority population um, were African-American. And so um, I think... I genuinely think it, it's um, a very layered and complex issue. I think part of the issue is that museums are competing, just first of all, competing with um, other leisure time activities. So you're competing with um, sports. You're competing with, um, you know, the ballet and, and theater and, um, you know, spending time with family. You're, you're competing with other ways that people want and could spend their time. But I think another layer is that um, for many people, the museum is a kind of public white space. And so I think for um, visitors of color, that means that you have to behave in a certain way, um, that you have to even physically kind of um, assume a certain posture. Um, And I think that people feel like the way that you behave is not necessarily congruent with um, music, that that act of museum going. Um, I also think that um, it has a lot to do with um, sometimes how the objects arrived in the museum. So you're talking about issues of um, colonialism, and um, you're talking about, um, when I think specifically about uh, Native Americans and some of the Native American objects, um, I think in a lot of ways the act of displaying objects um, perhaps might be offensive or it might be... um, Sometimes when we look at objects or we see representations of um, cultural events or cultural um, understandings in the objects that, in the museum. Sometimes I think there's a sometimes a psychological um, sort of barrier um, that happens when you um, visit a museum and you see certain objects. And sometimes people want to experience that, and other times I think it, perhaps it might be hard to um, experience those things. I also think that. Um, You know, every once in a while there's um, an economic barrier as well. I know many, many museums um, are free. I know other museums offer sort of a free or reduced day uh, once a month. But I still think that with some of the really great programming that has a fee associated with it, I think sometimes people feel that I want to participate in this event, but I simply can't because I I can't afford it. Um, And then also I think that Museums um, have difficulty attracting visitors of color because I I think that there still needs to be um, a lot of work done in just um, creating and establishing trust. 
I think there, there needs to be um, great effort to go out and figure out who's in your community. You know, I, I'm a big advocate for literally going out and walking your community. Um, you know, understand, you know, get some data, understand who lives in your community, understand how it's changed. Um, and I think collaborative partnerships are, are the way to, to go, the way to sort of begin to establish these relationships. And so I think in many ways um, these are just some of the initial barriers to participation for visitors of color in the museum. I, I, that's a very, very good, good list. Uh, I, I, um, Adrian Russell, when uh, we were speaking last week, said that it's very difficult for her as a black woman to mm-hmm. walk into a museum and the only other black faces are the guards or the janitors. The you know, exactly. I mean that that makes a huge, huge statement. And I know, mm-hmm. um, uh, working in in Newark for many, many years, we um, as part of the senior administration, we worked very, very hard to uh, bring in uh, people of color at, at all levels of the organization, at the, and that uh, that not only sort of made a statement, but it helped us as a senior management group work around the table and have mm-hmm. some of these tougher discussions that mm-hmm. we wouldn't ordinarily have if everybody looked like me around the table. Mm-hmm. I have to say, one of the, one of the uh, stories, one of the narratives that has um, stuck with me um, over the course of many, many months, is um, a dear friend of mine who is, you know, a, a huge museum advocate. Um, she's very well-traveled. Um, she supports artists and um, just a wonderful, wonderful um, woman. Um, I sit on a board with her, um, an African-American friends group at our local art museum, and um she shared this story with me about the time that you know, she's, she practically lives at the museum. She's, she's always at the museum. She's a museum staple. But she <laughs> shared with me the time that she was leaving the museum one, one um, early evening. And an older African-American woman saw her leaving the museum. And she, she stopped and she looked at her. And she kind of gave her this really strange look. And she said... You know, we, she said, we, we can go in there? Like, you can go in there? Like, what are you doing in there? Like, what, what, what is in there? And proceeded to have a conversation about um, not under, passing this building every day, not understanding what is in there, what is going on, who it is for, um, and just not understanding the institution of the museum and it itself, what, what's the purpose, um, you know, what is it doing. And she shared that she had vivid memories of um, being a small child and just not being able to have access to certain um, institutions because of um, segregation. Mm-hmm. And that was phenomenal to me to be able to be able to hear that a woman of a certain age just automatically 
um, excluded herself from museum going because of a kind of cultural memory. And I think that notion of cultural memory and, again, public white space or spaces where you are not to go or spaces where you are not welcome or spaces where you are not um, sure what is really going on and what is the value of that um, institution to your life is something that has um, a kind of trickle-down effect that we have yet to kind of really discuss. And so for me, I've just not forgotten that, is that this woman wholly did not understand what was going on in that building and why would another uh, black woman be leaving that building dressed so nicely and with a smile and all excited about having left this place. Wow. Uh, <laughs> wow, yes. Uh, that... Uh, Thank you for sharing that story. I, I'm a little speechless. Uh, I'm not, in some ways, I'm I'm not surprised, uh, having had uh, many discussions with friends of mine uh, who reminded me and have told me stories of what it was even like living here in Washington and particularly Baltimore in the 50s and 60s and the, you know, sort of the unstated uh, segregation. So it's, uh, that is... But that story reflects to me and reminds me that those scars run deep. And as mm-hmm. you say, it is I, that, that cultural memory. She didn't even think about it. Uh, and I'm sure that she may have even uh, uh, inadvertently communicated that to her children or perhaps her grandchildren. And mm-hmm. why, you know, why would they have any reason to doubt that? I mean, there are so many messages that we send our, our children uh, and, and young people without even thinking about it. Uh, yeah. and, and, you know, and that I, I would suspect that that kind of strong, as you say, cultural memory would be difficult to break down even after one museum visit, as you say, it's, you know, there have been so many wonderful programs where we've brought in, uh, museums have, have, have reached out to mm-hmm. uh, African-American audiences, you know, all sorts of different audiences. But I, I, it's what, following up on what you were saying before, there doesn't seem to be the follow-up. It's almost mm-hmm. as if we just assume that if we bring someone in once, that mm-hmm. they'll automatically see how wonderful it is and they'll come back but mm-hmm. that that that's not the case no if that it was has the case to be, um, deep connective um, engagement it has to be a, 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 a vital continuum and with each interaction um, there has to be some type of um, conversation or some type of, um, I'm not even sure, but something that it helps to instill the value of the objects and the value of the institution itself. Um, it just can't be a kind of, here's this event or this program, thank you for coming. It just has to be um, a deep level of engagement. Well, and yes, and, and as you've pointed out in some of your writings, it can't simply be uh, an event that focuses on that community. 
you know, like no. uh, showcasing a black artist and then saying that that you know will invite a, a large contingent of African Americans because, of course, they'll love that black artist, which they may or may not. Mm-hmm. But it it is a uh, it's a subtle form of segregation, isn't it? It is, and also it is a double edged sword because every time you do that, every time you go and sort of um, you know, you approach a community and you say, we have this event that we think you will like, um, eventually you give the impression that you are a kind of a token. It, it kind of leaves a, a kind of bad energy. It's sort of like you only call us when, or you only need us when, or you only want us to populate. And so people, um, it, it kind of builds a kind of mistrust because people want to be um, wooed and contacted and approached all the time because they want relationship. And so, again, I think for me it's all about relationship and engagement and community. And um, you, you, don't, you cannot build a relationship after one encounter. It has to be um, a, you know, a series of um, very sort of open and... Um, honest and um, interactive engagement that's what builds a, a relationship well and i and i i think too it's the belief uh, and going back to what you know and some people may be listening to the show saying wow that's the most simplistic thing you've ever said carol is that the museum really is for everyone uh, it is. i think some i think sometimes we get caught up uh, and it's easy to do. We get caught up in, in our business models and in business marketing. There's a lot to be said for uh, business marketing, but, but business marketing and uh, uh, demographics assumes segregation. It assumes yeah. that we have this group of people over here and this group of people over here, and we have to fill their need, uh, our presumed need. And so we just mm-hmm. presume that they're going to like a certain kind of artist. or exactly. And it could be, you know, like hip-hop artists because we want to get young people involved. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. going back, it doesn't have to be about race per se. Mm-hmm. Um, we are, before I launch into another uh, set of questions, uh, we're going to go ahead and take our second break a little bit early so uh, uh, we don't get caught in, um, in, in mid-thought. So we will be okay. back in just a moment. Uh, more with Portia Moore. Uh, okay, and great. please stay tuned. Okay, we will be back in a moment. You're talking to uh, Portia Moore and Carol Bossert on Museum Life. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Think of the world 50 years ago. Now think of this same world and how it will be 50 years from now. Did you know that if the world's population continues to grow at its current rate, our children and grandchildren will only have 25% of the resources per capita that our parents and grandparents had? We must preserve the foundation of a quality standard of living. That foundation starts with Go Green Radio. Join your host, Jill Buck, for Go Green Radio every Friday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on Voice America. 
What if there was a radio show that could demonstrate how we can cut your taxes in half without diminishing needed government services? One that could explain how to create tens of millions of jobs at no cost to taxpayers, as well as fantastic yet easily affordable health care. Side effects include cutting crime rates nationwide, providing better education for our children, international peace and harmony, and protecting your private, personal data from government intrusion. Tune in to Libertarians Working for you with Arvind Vora weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. Tired of lackluster results with your marketing? Craving more leads in your business? Tune into the Mojo Marketing Edge with the team behind Mojo Global Marketing, Ira Rosen and Corey Michael Sanchez. Winners of the Marketer of the Year, they will show you how to generate daily leads, build databases of raving fans, and close deals faster than ever before. See what's hot right now and how you can tap into it to generate an endless supply of customers and clients. The Mojo Marketing Edge can be heard every Monday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bossert. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to carol.bosser at verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life. Welcome back. This is Carol Bossert. Uh, you're listening to Museum Life, and I am here with Portia Moore, and we have been having a uh, a very uh, interesting but very critical conversation about um, uh, inclusion and what it means and uh, the fact that museums are for everybody uh, and um, and that really needs to be taken to heart and sometimes we say it but we don't act it um, so Portia um, yes. could you uh, one of the things you know and, and you are working on your doctorate and in in this field and you talk about this uh, framing uh, framing this discussion in a theory called critical race theory so I'm wondering yes. if you could just help us understand a little bit about what that is and how that can help us uh, move this conversation forward. Okay. Um, well, critical race theory um, is an intellectual and academic uh, academic form of inquiry. It's you know an academic discipline, um, and it focuses on looking at the intersection of um, race, identity, and power. So, looking at um, institutional power structures and looking at um, the ways in which a system or organization might have um, built within it um, structural or institutional racism. Um, it also just, you know, in general, looks at um, culture. And this is why I started applying critical race theory um, to cultural heritage institutions. I think that in the museum world and the museum setting, or again within um, cultural heritage institutions um, in general, I use critical race theory to look at the ways that um, institutional structures of power 
and um, white ways of knowing operate as barriers to participation for visitors of color. And so what I'm really looking at is, um, and, I, and I hope that what I'm doing is looking um, very lovingly because I love and am so passionate about museums. But what I'm looking at um, is to see if there is a just distribution of cultural artifacts within the collections. I'm also looking to see if there is um, genuine representativeness in the marketing and the program programming um, in the staff. And so really what critical race theory is for me is I'm using it simply as a tool to um, identify cultural inequities and um, trying to understand that um, critical race theory just kind of helps me to what I think uh, help to better or transform the museum for those communities which I feel have been um, underrepresented or have been excluded um, for whatever reason. And not even, you know, intentionally, but just who are just not genuinely participating within the museum. And so that's what critical race theory is, and that's how I'm applying it. Interesting, that, that phrase, uh, white ways of, of knowing, I, you know, certainly that uh, comes up uh, often um, when we're working on uh, projects related to, as you say, colonialism, uh, uh, connections between, uh, you know, Europe, uh, the, the, the conflicts between European settlers and uh, Native Americans, uh, tribal nations, but I, you know, I I never had thought about that as being a barrier to other groups as well. As can I know I'm putting you on the spot, but can you think? Of, can you give me an example? Um, an example of how you know so so uh, uh, a white way of knowing something is uh, you know how how that goes beyond just colonialism. Um. Like I said, I think I think in many ways it goes back to um, how do you decide? Like, and again, my my starting point is always kind of art museums because I love art museums. But how do you decide who or you know how do you decide what objects to display? How do you begin to place value on um, the artists that are represented in your museum in your collections? Um, I think the For me, also the white ways of knowing, um, again, go back to this idea of public white space. So um, I think when you think of a a stereotypical way to experience the museum is that you go in and you stand quietly in front of a painting and um, you you might have a a side conversation which might sound to other ears very... um, intellectualized or using um, language that is sort of very um, specialized. You have this specialized kind of knowledge or, you know, assumption of some level of education. Um, And I think that for anybody from any um, community of color, the expectation might be that you should have the ability to go in and see something and have it not be on the wall. Um, it might be laid out on a table and you might be able to 
um, put your hands on it, interact with it in a certain way, or going up to um, a painting and experiencing it might simply mean um, that you have some other kind of cultural um, way to experience it other than um, standing there and and being quiet or having a kind of um, intellectualized conversation about it. So I I think that's kind of what I mean when I, a little bit of what I mean when I think about um, about white ways of knowing. Okay, thank you. That that uh, that helps. It, it helps a, a, a little bit. It also reminds me that you know, uh, oftentimes the uh, the curator, a curator, or perhaps a small group, uh, make those decisions about what to display, what the storyline will be, uh, without mm-hmm. benefit of really looking at the broader community, uh, mm-hmm. and that probably just you know leads you down a path that uh, that that maybe isn't as as useful. Uh, mm-hmm. I'd like to I'd like to shift gears a little bit in the time that we have remaining, uh, and and uh, and look at because you are in a unique situation. You are both in the school of library science, and you are yeah. uh, you know as you said at the beginning, you're you're looking at sort of the 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 issues, uh, the, the conversion um, uh, points of congruence between libraries, archives, and museums. So, in this issue of um, you know, attracting people of uh, color, and within your your sort your critical race theory, how you know what what's sort of the what are the parallels and what are the the differences between libraries and museums and how they uh, connect to their entire community? Mm-hmm. One of the things that I think um, libraries have done really well. Um, in particular, you know, I live in Columbia, South Carolina. We have the most phenomenal library um, system. It is it is just phenomenal. Um, they have a new logo. Um, it's, I think it's called Access Freely. Um, it's hands-on, interactive, very um, deeply entrenched in technology, very, you know, open access um, Everything is accessible. One of the things that I, that, music, that libraries have been able to do is totally transform in, a, in deep ways um, perceptions of what the library is, what it can offer, and who it is for. You know, the, li- the library field took a look at itself many years ago and recognized that with all of these wonderful collections and all of the hard work that it was doing, it still was not getting users of colors, and it also was not retaining or attracting um, pro- professionals in the field of color. And so it lovingly, I think, and, and very wisely said, okay, we have um, a set of values here that... Um, are telling people that we have a specific normative and we have um, a kind of a default. And we need, to, we need to really work hard to change that. They have um, so many initiatives. They have um, the Spectrum Fellowship, which um, really works hard to um, retain African-Americans uh, African American and recruit African American libraries. They ha- librarians. They also have um, several Native American initiatives. And um, I think the library has done a good job to just 
not have the sort of white normative default. Um, and again, they've incorporated technology in this really meaningful way. They've recognized and, and have acknowledged meaningful and powerful ways to engage and include um, the homeless population across the nation. Um, you know, you can go into our local um, public library and do anything from use a 3D printer to check out uh, DVDs and iPods, download free music, um, come and hear um, like a jazz show, come and hear poetry, come and hear taiko drum, um, you know, check out a book from from any type of genre that you can possibly think of. And I think that um, you can even go and see, like, a museum exhibit. And so I think that the, mu- the library has been able to transform itself from this um, image of this kind of sterile place where you go and you check out a book and you're very quiet and you don't speak and the librarian is wearing glasses and she's, you know, shushing you throughout and she's following you and making sure that you don't eat. Now you can go into a, li- into a library and there's a cafe. You can have coffee. You can play checkers. You can surf the web. You know, it's, um, it has become um, a community hub and an information kind of center and the place where you can learn how to apply for a job and you can have a librarian practice with you on how to interview for a job. You can have a fashion designer come in and um, bring clothes and instruct you on how to, um, on what to wear for your job interview. So I think that is the thing that the library has done is that it has totally transformed itself into something that has deep value and meaning into the community. And so I'm, I'm really hoping that um, the museum can find a way to transform itself in these sort of deep ways so that it's not viewed um, as this place where you go in. And, you know, so many museums have these amazing um, ways that they're incorporating technology. I mean, museums now are, are deeply um, interactive, but I still think it still needs to figure out ways to um, transform itself in more meaningful and powerful ways so that people, un- people want to come to the museum. Um, and so, I, yeah, I feel like I'm rambling now, but it, I get really excited when I think about... Um, the makerspace movement in the library field and how that's changing and how I'm really excited and and really um, keeping an eye out on how museums are using um, and creating makerspaces and how that has brought in so many people from the community that previously would never have um, entered the museum. That uh, uh, your uh, your passion and excitement is infectious, uh, Portia. <laughs> your everything that you're saying is reminding me too of of uh, the Montgomery County Public Libraries here in in Maryland, which are also just tremendous, and mm-hmm. uh, they're going through a a uh, a session a, a series of renovations, uh, which is sad because your library is closed. But then when it reopens, they have chairs and they have little mm-hmm. meeting rooms and they have places where so it is a welcoming place where 
no matter mm-hmm. who you are, you can come in, and even if you don't want to check out the book or yeah. the video, you can sit and listen to it and share it with others. Uh, mm-hmm. So perhaps, yeah, uh, that that's uh, it, it's an important um, model, perhaps, that we need to be thinking more about. You know, libraries have garden clubs, they, you know, have gardens, they have cooking classes, and I think that they've realized that um, the thing that they have that has the most value is is the information. And so they've figured out ways to kind of unpack that so it's not just a building that houses books, but it is a place that provides information. It is a true information center. And I think if if museums could figure out a way to um, really, like, um, transform this idea of the mission and purpose of what it is that we do, we have all these wonderful objects. You know, a, a museum is a place where you should be able to go and get cultural information and have that packaged to you in, in whatever meaningful and powerful way, whether it's, you know, Thank you. Thank you, Portia. I'm going to have to cut you. I'm going to have to cut you off there, and I I apologize. uh, No problem. This is this is a great way of leaving the show today, and I'm going to uh, everyone uh, follow Portia on Twitter, and also uh, read the Inclusion blogs where she is a uh, a regular writer. This has been a marvelous show today, Portia. You've opened my eyes, uh, and. I am sure uh, the eyes of many of our listeners. So uh, thank you. We will be back next week with another show of Museum Life. Thanks for listening this week. This is Carol Bossert for Museum Life. Thank you for tuning in this week to Museum Life. Please join your host, Carol Bossert, again next Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What museum issue is on your mind? Tell Carol at carol.bossert at verizon.net.